0: Chapter 26 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 26 No, then, my dear, said Amelia, when she had settled herself as aforesaid. But now that I think of it, I do not know your name, she added, smiling. It is time, however, to banish all ceremony between us. You will call me Amelia, while I shall call you. I have a singular name, somewhat difficult to pronounce, replied Consuelo. The excellent Porpora, when he sent me hither, requested me to assume his name according to the custom which prevails among masters toward their favorite pupils. I share this privilege, therefore, with the great Huber, surnamed Porporina, but in place of porporina, please to call me simply Nina. Let it be Nina, then, between ourselves, said Amelia. Now listen, for I have a long story to tell you, and if I do not go back a little into the history of the past, you will never understand what took place in this house today. I am all attention, replied the new porporina. Of course, my dear Nina, said the young baroness, you know something of the history of Bohemia. Alas, replied Consuelo, as my master must have informed you, I am very deficient in information. I know somewhat of the history of music, indeed, but as to that of Bohemia, or any other country, I know nothing. In that case, replied Emilia, I must tell you enough of it to render my story intelligible. Some 300 years ago, the people among whom you now find yourself were great, heroic, and unconquerable. They had, indeed, strange masters, and a religion which they did not very well understand, but which their rulers wished to impose by force. They were oppressed by hordes of monks, while a cruel and abandoned king insulted their dignity and crushed their sympathies. But a secret fury and deep-seated hatred fermented below. The storm broke out, the strangers were expelled, religion was reformed, convents were pillaged and razed to the ground, while the drunken Wenceslaus was cast into prison and deprived of his crown. The signal of the revolt had been the execution of John Huss and Jerome of Prague, two wise and courageous Bohemians, who wished to examine and throw light upon the mysteries of Catholicism, and whom a council cited, condemned, and burned, after having promised them safe conduct and freedom of discussion. This infamous treason was so grating to national honor that a bloody war ravaged Bohemia and a large portion of Germany for many years. This exterminating war was called the War of the Hussites. Innumerable and dreadful crimes were committed on both sides. The manners of the times were fierce and cruel over the whole earth. Party spirit and religious fanaticism rendered them still more dreadful, and Bohemia was the terror of Europe. I shall not shock your imagination, already unfavorably impressed by the appearance of this savage country, by reciting the horrible scenes which then took place. On the one side it was nothing but murder, burnings, destructions, churches profaned, and monks and nuns mutilated, hung and thrown into boiling pitch. On the other side villages were destroyed, whole districts desolated, treasons, falsehoods, cruelties abounded on every side. Hussites were cast by thousands into the mines, filling abysses with their dead bodies and strewing the earth with their own bones and those of their enemies. These terrible Hussites were for a long time invincible, even yet their name is not mentioned without terror. And yet their patriotism, their intrepid constancy, and incredible exploits have bequeathed to us a secret feeling of pride and admiration which young minds, such as mine, find it somewhat difficult to conceal. And why conceal it? asked Consuelo, simply. It is because Bohemia has fallen back, after many struggles, under the yoke of slavery. Bohemia is no more, my poor Nina. Our masters were well aware that the religious liberty of our country was also its political freedom. Therefore, they have stifled both. See, replied Consuelo, how ignorant I am. I never heard of these things before, and I did not dream that men could be so unhappy and so wicked. A hundred years after John Huss, another wise man, a new sectarian, a poor monk called Martin Luther, sprang up to awaken the national spirit and to inspire Bohemia and all the independent provinces of Germany with hatred of a foreign yoke and revolt against popedom. The most powerful kings remained Catholics, not so much for love of religion as for love of absolute power. Austria united with them in order to overwhelm us, and a new war, called the Thirty Years' War, came to shake and destroy our national independence. From the commencement of this war, Bohemia was the prey of the strongest. Austria treated us as conquered, took from us our faith, our liberty, our language, and even our name. Our fathers resisted courageously, but the imperial yoke has weighed more and more heavily upon us. For the last hundred and twenty years, our nobility, ruined and decimated by exactions, wars, and torments, have been forced to expatriate themselves or turn renegades by abjuring their origin, Germanizing their names pay attention to this and renouncing the liberty of professing their religious opinions. They have burned our books, destroyed our schools, in a word made us Austrians. We are but a province of the empire, and you hear German spoken in a Slavonic state. That is saying enough. And you now suffer and blush for this slavery? I understand you, and I already hate Austria with all my heart. Oh, speak low, exclaimed the young baroness. No one can, without danger, speak thus under the black sky of Bohemia. And in this castle there is but one person, my dear Nina, who would have the boldness or the folly to say what you have just said. That is my cousin Albert. Is this then the cause of the sorrow which is imprinted on his countenance? I felt an involuntary sensation of respect on looking at him. Ah, my fair lioness of St. Mark, said Amelia, Surprised at the generous animation which suddenly lighted up the pale features of her companion. You take matters too seriously. I fear that in a few days my poor cousin will inspire you rather with pity than with respect. The one need not prevent the other, replied Consuelo. But explain yourself, my dear Baroness. Listen, said Amelia. We are a strictly Catholic family, faithful to church and state. We bear a Saxon name, and our ancestors, on the Saxon side, were always rigidly orthodox. Should my aunt, the some day undertake to relate, unhappily for you, the services which the counts and German barons have rendered to the Holy Cause, you will find that, according to her, there is not the slightest stain of heresy on our escutcheon. Even when Saxony was Protestant. The Rudolstads prefer to abandon their Protestant electors rather than the communion of the Romish Church. But my aunt takes care never to dilate on these things in presence of Count Albert. If it were not for that, you should hear the most astonishing things that every human ears have listened to. You excite my curiosity without gratifying it. I understand thus much that I should not appear before your noble relatives to share your sympathy and that of Count Albert for old Bohemia. You may trust to my prudence, dear Baroness, besides I belong to a Catholic country, and the respect which I entertain for my religion, as well as that which I owe your family, would ensure my silence on every occasion. It will be wise, for I warn you once again that we are terribly rigid upon that point. As to myself, dear Nina, I am a better compound, neither Protestant nor Catholic. I was educated by nuns, whose prayers and paternosters wearied me. The same weariness pursues me here, and my aunt Wenselawa, in her own person, represents the pedantry and superstition of a whole community. But I am too much imbued with the spirit of the age to throw myself, through contradiction, into the not less presumptuous controversies of the Lutherans. As for the Hussites, their history is so ancient that I have no more relish for it than for the glory of the Greeks and Romans. The French way of thinking is to my mind, and I do not believe there can be any other reason, philosophy or civilization than that which is practiced in charming and delightful France, the writings of which I sometimes have a peep at in secret, and whose liberty, happiness, and pleasures I behold from a distance, as in a dream. Through the bars of my prison. You each moment surprised me more, said Consuelo, innocently. How does it come that just now you appeared full of heroism in recalling the exploits of your ancient bohemians? I believed you a bohemian, and somewhat of a heretic. I am more than heretic and more than bohemian, replied Amelia, laughing. I am the least thing in life, incredulous altogether. I hate and denounce every kind of despotism, spiritual or temporal. In particular, I protest against Austria, which of all old duennas is the most wrong-headed and devout. And is Count Albert likewise incredulous? Is he also imbued with French principles? In that case you should suit each other wonderfully. Oh, we are the furthest in the world from suiting each other. And now, after all these necessary preambles, is the proper time to speak of him. Count Christian, my uncle, was childless by his first wife. Married again at the age of forty, he had five girls, who, as well as her mother, all died young, stricken with the same malady, a continual pain and a species of slow brain fever. This second wife was of pure Bohemian blood and had beside great beauty and intelligence. I did not know her. You will see her portrayed in the Grand Saloon where she appears dressed in a bodice of precious stones and scarlet mantle. Albert resembles her wonderfully. He is the sixth and last of her children, the only one who has attained the age of 30, and this not without difficulty. For without apparently being ill, he has experienced rude shocks and strange symptoms of disease of the brain, which still cause fear and dread as regards his life. Between ourselves I do not think that he will long outlive this fatal period which his mother could not escape. Although born of a father already advanced in years, Albert is gifted with a strong constitution, but as he himself says, the malady is in his soul and has ever been increasing. From his earliest infancy his mind was filled with strange and superstitious notions. When he was four years old, he frequently fancied he saw his mother beside his cradle, although she was dead, and he had seen her buried. In the night he used to awake and converse with her, which terrified my aunt Wensalawa, so much that she always made several women sleep in his chamber near the child, while the chaplain used, I do not know how much, holy water and said masses by the dozen to oblige the specter to keep quiet, but it was of no avail the child, although he had not spoken of his apparitions for a long time, declared one day in confidence to his nurse that he still saw his own dear mother, but he would not tell because Mr. Chaplin had said wicked words in the chamber to prevent her coming back. He was a silent and serious child. They tried to amuse him, they overwhelmed him with toys and playthings, but these only served for a long time to make him more sad. At last they resolved not to oppose the tastes which he displayed for study, and in effect this passion, being satisfied, imparted more animation to him, but only served to change his calm and languishing melancholy into a strange excitement, mingled with paroxysms of grief, the cause of which it was impossible to foresee or avert. For example, when he saw the poor, he melted into tears, stripped himself of his little wealth, even reproaching himself that he had not more to bestow. If he saw a child beaten or a peasant ill-used, he became so indignant that he would swoon away or fall into convulsions for hours together. All this displayed a noble disposition and a generous heart, but the best qualities pushed to extremes become defective or absurd. Reason was not developed in young Albert in proportion to feeling and imagination. The study of history excited without enlightening him. When he learned the crimes and injustice of men, he felt an emotion like that of the barbarian monarch, who, listening to the history of Christ's passion and death, exclaimed while he brandished his weapon, Ah, had I been there, I should have cut the wicked Jews into a thousand pieces. Albert could not deal with men as they have been and are. He thought having unjust and not having created them all kind and compassionate like himself. He did not perceive that, from an excess of tenderness and virtue, he was on the point of becoming impious and misanthropic. He did not understand what he felt, and at eighteen was as unfit to live among men and hold the place which his position demanded in society as he was at six months old. If any person expressed in his presence a selfish thought, Such as our poor world abounds with, and without which it could not exist, regardless of the rank of the person or the feelings of the family toward him, he displayed immediately an invincible dislike to him, and nothing could induce him to make the least advance. He chose his society from among the most humble and those most in disfavor with fortune and even nature. In the plays of his childhood he only amused himself with the children of the poor and especially with those whose stupidity or infirmities had inspired all others with disgust or weariness. This strange inclination, as you will soon perceive, has not abandoned him. As in the midst of these eccentricities he displayed much intelligence, a good memory, and a taste for the fine arts, his father and his good aunt Wensalawa, who tenderly cherished him, had no cause to blush for him in society. They ascribed his peculiarities to his rustic habits, and when he was inclined to go too far, they took care to hide them under some pretext or other from those who might be offended by them. But in spite of his admirable qualities and happy dispositions, the Count and the canoness saw with terror this independent and in many respects insensible nature, reject more and more the laws of polite society and the amenities and usages of the world. But as far as you have gone, interrupted Consuelo, I see nothing of the unreasonableness of which you speak. Oh, replied Amelia, that is because you are yourself, so far as I can see, of an open and generous disposition. But perhaps you are tired of my chatter and would wish to sleep. Not at all, my dear Baroness, replied Consuelo. I entreat you to continue. Amelia resumed her narrative in these words. End of chapter 26, read by Bryce Cries, Youngstown, October 18th, 2021.